poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is a multiple-time WSOP gold bracelet winner who has $2.6 million in live MTT caches, Eric Froelich. Eric's journey into the world of poker began with a gateway game you should be very familiar with at this point, Magic the Gathering. And Efro isn't just good, he's a Magic Hall of Famer who's one of the very best on the planet. And back in 2005, when Eric entered his first WSOP, we didn't have to wait very long for him to make his mark. As fate would have it, his first ever cash at the WSOP was beating over 1,000 players to take down a $1,500 limit event in 2005 for a cool $300,000 score. From there, he ended up winning another WSOP bracelet, as well as becoming a sponsored Full Tilt Red Pro. But as you're about to learn in the following conversation with Eric, outer success is always secondary to inner peace. So in today's episode featuring Eric Froelich, you're going to learn the amazing story behind Eric's first WSOP bracelet. If you're a bankroll nit, you should probably close your eyes. The power of self-healing and growth the romantical tale of how Eric met his wife, and much, much more. Now, without any further ado, I bring to you the one and only Eric Efro Froelich. Eric, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing, man? Well, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Doing quite well. Typically, to start off this show... The, the first question is, how did you enter the world of poker? Um, you know, what does your poker journey look like? And I, I, I know that you're in the Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame, so I have to imagine those two are linked. Oh, yeah, super linked. Um, you know, I started playing poker before I was 21, and I was kind of the youngest in my friend group by a small amount of a bunch of different Magic players, and most of them if not all of them, for at least a period of time, got into poker. And among those, the person who played the most, was most successful, was Brock Parker, who was T. Soprano on Poker Stars and a bunch, you know, played on a lot of different sites between Paradise Poker and everything else that existed back then. But I spent a lot of time just kind of watching him play, decided I wanted to, you know, kind of dabble in the game, got some basic tips of, you know, how to start out or at least what hands to play to start out playing, what was limit hold'em at the time. Got, you know, a small amount of money sent to me from a friend to play on a site and started running it up slowly. I mean, it was the Wild West back then. It, for a long period of time, it felt like with poker that if you were smart and you were going to put time into it, even without necessarily fully knowing what you were doing, you were going to be pretty successful because there was so much money on there and there were so many people who were just there for the good time. They weren't trying to necessarily get better or trying to, to do anything besides, you know, blow off steam or, um, you know, recreational activity before, you know, Black Friday and everything got shut down. It, it 
just felt like everyone I knew, everyone in my friend group, the people who would tell you they really never knew how to play poker. And for myself, who was really successful looking back then, I don't think I was ever particularly good when I was winning the most, but it was just a time where it didn't take that much as long as, you know, you were taking in what was happening, learning a little bit, you know, trying to understand just more than the people around you, which wasn't really that much back then. Obviously today it's a totally different world and requires an incredible amount of training to be anywhere near the top or be successful. But um, yeah, it was just was something that was really interesting to me. And so that was something I kind of dabbled in, you know, playing at 19 and 20. Go on. Um, through magic, I became friends with, I became friends with David Williams's friends, which allowed me to then meet David Williams when he, you know, he kind of was taking a break from magic, came back to magic. We became really close. I was kind of coaching him in 2004 because I was 20. I couldn't go play the World Series of Poker. But at that point, I'd gotten, you know, pretty good for the time. Not that, again, I, I want to preface that by saying at no point do I actually think that my skill level at poker would rival what anyone consider good nowadays. But I was good for the time, I feel like. And, you know, we he played a lot of satellites on Poker Stars, wanted to play the main event. I talked him through a lot of hands afterwards. We talked a lot of poker. He ended up qualifying for the main event, uh, got second place. And then I came out the next year and won my first bracelet and it kind of went from there. It, it's really hard to compare eras. You know, I think especially yeah. in pokers, you know, because what's interesting about like the current era of poker is that like it needed that era as a foundation to build off of right like mm-hmm. it's not like people today um are more intelligent right it's like they just no. had all those experiences of you know 2004 to 2011 to build off of and have software and create software and invest time and invest energy um into really uh just just I'm not going to say solving the game, but like basically understanding the game at a much deeper level than, you know, we understood it back then. And, um, and kind of going back to your early days, uh, I guess to set the timeline, like how old are you today? And at at what part of the country did you grow up? I turned 38 in a week. Um, I guess this was about 17 to 20 years ago when I was coming up and at the time, I was, you know, in the mid-Atlantic. Uh, Brock and my friends were in the Maryland area. I was in Northern Virginia, and I went to UVA for college. And, uh, yeah, I ended up moving out to Los Angeles right when I turned 21, right before the World Series. I ended up moving to Vegas, I guess, in 2010 for the first time. How did you get into Magic in the first place? I mean, Magic, <laughs> so this was fifth grade. So 1994, end of 94 into 95, and just went to a really good elementary school that had a a good gifted program. Um, My teacher, one teacher of the year, and basically was setting up, he set up this whole like economy. Um, We had our own monetary system, banking system that used a lot of various things that are actually used in banking with interest and loans and, um, you know, had a whole government system, which was kind of just a lot for kids who were what was 11 and it was great but part of the economy became you know having these fads that people got excited over and then sold and traded in class and it started with pogs and then it became magic and so the entire class the entire class started playing magic and all the boys all the girls were all collecting the magic cards and 
I thought the game was cool, but the rulebook for Magic is intense. Like, I could not pick it up. And I didn't even, and as someone who's never really been a reader or anything like that, like just trying to go through this monotony of words and explanations and stuff that really I don't think was laid out particularly easy, especially for a kid. It just wasn't something that was happening. And so my dad ended up reading the whole rule book and teaching my brother and I to play. And so he played with us and I got really into it. And by the time next year rolled around for sixth grade, there was only myself and one other kid from the class who still played magic at all. But at that point, I really liked it. And so it was something I started doing locally, going to tournaments, collecting cards and got pretty competitive into it really early. I think my first um you know, top eight, they call it basically final table uh, in, a, in a large scale tournament. I was 13. I think I was the youngest to do that and qualify for the professional event. So, um, yeah, it was something I really picked up on and, and loved from a very early age. Why did magic resonate with you? Like you, as you said, you, you didn't want to read the rule book. You know, your dad taught you how to play. Well, I did not want to read the rule book. I was failing at reading the rule book. <laughs> yeah. I very much wanted to know the rules. But it was just, it was above my head. It just was. Yeah. Why, why did it stick? Why, why was it so impactful and resonate with you in such a way that like you just invested so much energy and, you know, increased your level of skill so quickly? I, I think that I've always been someone who's really liked the competitive outlet and for me growing up, I played baseball, basketball, football, played, dabbled in the sports, but I've always been a big guy. I've always been out of shape. I've never been particularly athletic. So these sports I was fine at. At times I was decent, but like I wasn't good. And I've always been very sharp. I've been very mathematical and very analytical. And so finding somewhere where I could use that you know, outlet to both be competitive and be strategic was just perfect. And so I grew up playing a little bit of chess as just a kid kid. Like I obviously I'm never good at chess either, but I was good. I was really good probably for someone who was nine and 10. Like I, you know, was able to do well at all of the local to like slightly bigger than local tournaments, but you know, never particularly good. And magic was just something that allowed me to both use the creative, like I'm not really a creative person, but the way that I am creative blends very well to magic and that it's creative in a strategy type way. Like I'm not artistic. I'm not, um, you know, I, I don't really view the world in those type of ways, but when I can kind of get creative with things that involve numbers more, it, like, which also ends up playing out pretty well with poker of trying to think about different ways to play hands that aren't necessarily straightforward. Um, yeah, it's just something that really clicked with me. And so from, an early age. Like I also am just someone who enjoys collecting. Like I have a whole DVD collection. Not that I really care about DVDs. I just think those type of things are nice. I don't read books. I don't care about books, but I think libraries are awesome. Like I think seeing a display of books that I never want to read <laughs> is really cool. Like that's just, you know, part of my personality, I guess. And so um, the magic cards, like it hit on everything. And how did it feel, uh, you know, not having a ton of success right like competitively in like physical sports and things like that and then playing magic and another competitive endeavor and you are competing at a high level like you are finding success 
Yeah, I, it was good for me and bad for me. Um, you know, I was both the loud kid who was always cracking jokes and kind of, I don't want to say knew I was smarter than everyone else, but in a way, kind of that. Like, I, I knew I was really sharp. and was, was <laughs> I don't want to say it, but I, I but did Not know. smarter than everyone, because, <laughs> like, I, that was clearly not the case. But, you know, I think that's kind of the saying, like, smarter than everyone else. Obviously, it doesn't mean you have to be 100%. But, sure. you know, I, I was... I was very smart for my age and I was very quick at picking things up and magic. I think the fact that I was so good, I guess, from such a young age and beating people who were 15, 20 years older than me consistently made me kind of cocky, kind of brash, kind of loud, kind of a dick. And so I, I don't, I mean, I try to think back to that time it's it's hard because I don't necessarily know exactly what I was like, but I can only imagine that like people, you know, when I'm 14 and cocky and people who are 28 probably hated me. I don't actually know for sure, but I mean, I, I can't, ima- I, I imagine I would have hated me. They, so. Yeah. They, they may not have hated you, but you certainly broke their spirits. <laughs> yeah. That, I think that kind of blends in with each other when you're talking about, you know, a hobby and game that you're going to play. If someone's breaking your spirits or anything, it's not going to make it as fun. So I mean, that's something I feel like I got better about pretty quickly, but I think that was definitely a phase in my life where I went from, you know, yeah, just kind of being that cocky kid. And I ended up going to um, it was Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, which was the number one rated high school in the country. And I was no longer the smartest kid. I wasn't even close. And I would hang out with a lot of people who were just brilliant all the time. And it also became a place where... Um, I guess being more of a goofball, being louder, it just didn't, maybe it would have been totally fine, but it felt inappropriate as I'm like taking college level classes and having a bunch of people who are super studious, which I obviously have never been studious. I've never been someone who's gotten into books or studied or done any of these things. And that was kind of a normal thing growing up. But then I was around a lot of kids from, you know, different areas who all came to this magnet school and that wasn't, didn't really feel like the case anymore. And so I just became very, very introverted, very quiet very, you know, different than I think I had been for the previous few years. And, you know, I, I think that also allowed me to escape a little bit more into magic where it's just kind of in my notebook, scribbling down deck ideas and card ideas and various things with that to kind of get lost in my own world because I, I think I was kind of more lost as, as a person, um, just didn't really feel like I fit in very well. Yeah. Um, do you think that do you have fond memories of going to that school or do you think it would have been better to stay in your other school? Really hard to say. Um, I had conversations with only my mom about it, that how, you know, miserable I, you know, I felt and she wanted me to go back to the other school, but I felt like I would kind of be disappointing my dad. You know, again, I never really talked to him about it, but he's always like, I know he would have been totally fine with it. He's the most supportive person I've ever met. When I ended up dropping out of school for poker, when I started traveling for magic, all these things, he was by my side. Like he traveled to the events with me in high school for the magic tournaments. I was missing school all the time to go to these things, totally supportive. And so I I don't know if that was all in my head or, you know, again, at this point, it's so long ago, it's over 20 years that I don't really know for sure. It's just whatever ideas I've kind of conjured up in my head about how I feel the situation was like, Um, would my life have been better? I, I don't, I don't know. It's so hard to say because I really did have some solid friendships, but I didn't, I don't really have those friendships today. Like all of my lifelong friends are 
Magic and poker players, and all of the poker players are from Magic. So it's kind of all that thing. And so Magic really shaped my life more than anything else. And what school I was at, it's hard to say which one would have necessarily done more for me. Like I ended up obviously getting a great education because I was at an incredible high school. I got into UVA, which was, you know, a top 20 school um, because honestly, most of my graduating class ended up going to UVA. Like it's basically the, the quote unquote safety school, but um, for that high school, because everyone else is going to Harvard and MIT and Stanford and everything else. And so it's just like, I, I don't know. I don't know how much things would have been different. I, I, I mean, the, the high school I would, the junior high I went to fed into a high school, it was six grades. It was a massive, massive campus, obviously for, you know, having six grades that are just, you know, and, and full grades. So it probably had 6,000 or so students, like big, big school. I, life would have just been different. I don't know whether it would have been better or worse. I don't know what kind of situations would arise being in a more public school. Cause I think I was probably in a more sheltered school in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it's just hard to say. When you played magic, were you more, gregarious outgoing than you were mm, in school a little bit i mean i i was definitely definitely as i started getting later on like my senior year of high school you could have made an argument that i was you know in the conversation for best magic players in the world whether it was probably not number one but in that you know conversation of maybe top five and um, I, I did extremely well in, in a bunch of events in a row and, you know, that confidence that I don't really have in anything else necessarily, especially being, you know, an overweight teenager who was not very social. It wasn't really a, you know, I, I think I, I definitely wasn't anywhere near popular. I don't want to say that I was totally unpopular because I did have, I did have people I hung out with. I did have friends. I did actually, I don't remember much about it, but I know I used to hang out after school like once or twice a week and play poker with like the popular kids in the senior lounge, which I wasn't really friends with any of them. And I don't really know how that came about. But <laughs> I remember that was a thing that I used to do. Yeah. How does it feel? You know, you said you're about to turn 38. I've been 38 now for a couple of months. I can attest that it feels a lot like 37. Um, but yeah, forgetting these memories and like just being, uh, it's just this weird transition period, I think in life where it's like, wow, like I know I was a kid and I remember being a kid and I remember being small, but like, I can't really imagine it now. Um, anyway, I mean, just, I can totally imagine it. Like I can, I can see the game. I can see where we were hanging out. I can see the layout of the school. I know the people, I know the jokes I got cracked, but I don't know how it started. Because yeah. again, I wasn't popular. I wasn't friends with these people. So how, and I wasn't like a poker player. It's not like people would go like, oh, you play poker. You want to hang out and play in this game. So where would that have started? I don't really know. <laughs> so <that's... laughs> well, whatever. You can make up your own story now. Who the hell cares? Nobody will. <laughs> Nobody, Nobody can fact check it anyway. It or why it happened or that it happened. <laughs> exactly. Um, you mentioned dropping out of school to play magic and poker. Uh, tell me about that and how that went down. Uh, I, I didn't drop out of school to play magic or poker. Um, you know, I, I completed high school, went to college and college was a struggle because it was very similar to high school. And then I started off and I, I was the same person. I didn't attend class 
pretty regularly. Like I pretty regularly skipped classes I, and I didn't read books or open textbooks. So I didn't really study my brain at the time. And this is the tough part about getting old. You talk about the memories. I used to have the best memory of anyone I've ever met. And actually that's changed now that I've met some people in poker, but for a long time, <laughs> that was true where I could go to class. I could sleep through the class and I would retain a huge amount of the information from the class wow. to the point where during the test, the answer was there in my head, but I'd never opened a textbook and I wasn't paying attention during the class when this was talked about. And so it created this very, you know, kind of easy street, but also I felt like I'm in school. I'm at a great school. Honestly, I enjoyed the classes that I went to and yet I had no desire to leave. And I didn't take school seriously. And it felt like I'm, letting myself down, letting my family down, letting the world down in a lot of ways. Um, it, it was kind of disappointing that because, you know, I said earlier, like, I think I was given a real gift of, you know, what I was given as far as intelligence is concerned. I think that I was born very intelligent. My dad is extremely intelligent. My mom is not the same as far as book smart, but is just very intelligent in a lot of other ways. And I feel like I got a lot of the best qualities. And so did my brother. And I say that not as a brag, but as a thing that I feel like, I feel like I've almost wasted that in a lot of ways. And especially at the time, because I wasn't doing anything to help the world or help society. I wasn't doing anything advantageous with it. And I eventually found, you know, these card games. And I think I've given a lot back and done a lot of really good things as a result since then. And so I'm pretty happy with how my life has ended up shaping out. But definitely in my 20s, this was a, a real thing. And I'm just like, man, I feel like I, I've kind of been given this, you know, silver spoon, golden spoon, silver platter, whatever the saying is. And I'm really just kind of squandering it in a lot of ways. Um, and that felt disappointing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be a burden, right? Like you are born with these gifts. And if you don't you know, use them for the greater good, or you're just using them to play card games or whatever it is. You're like, oh, you know, you, you can see, it feels like you can feel like you had more to give and yeah, you're just kind of squandering it or how, however you relate it in your own mind. Well, yeah. And at the time I was doing nothing. Like I was scribbling down deck lists for magic, <laughs> but like I wasn't really attending class. I was in a great school and not taking advantage of it. So not only was I not using the gifts, but I also was in this position mm. that I think a lot of people would have really liked to be in to be able to get that kind of education and be in this great environment. I mean, UVA is an incredible campus, incredible school, has so many great professors. And it's just like I wasn't I wasn't even going to class most of the time. Like it's just what, what was the point? And um yeah, so what ended up happening was my mom actually got had multiple brain tumors and it was, you know, serious and she ended up having to have surgery. They ended up, you know, not being cancerous and the surgery they they kind of gave like a very like the best case scenario is X. The odds of that happening are low and then her result was significantly better than X. So wow. A lot of the, you know, guaranteed downsides didn't happen and all of the positives basically happened. So it, it was ended up being completely incredible what, you know, that she was totally fine and that she had less issues afterwards by a long shot than they said were the minimum. 
so it worked out great but i you know that was kind of a low point where if something happened to my mom i don't know if i would have been able to handle it at all like really shitty thoughts crossed my my mind on many occasions but i ended up taking time off school school was going poorly for me mainly because i ran into uva having a language requirement and language is this one thing where you can't really sleep through class or not study and not read the book and retain things for that long and so once they get into like you know conjugating all sorts of you know things getting trickier and needing to have this incredible amount of memorization and actual usage where I was putting in no effort, it became where despite getting A's in the class, doing nothing the first couple semesters, once you get into like advanced, it was just like, I can't pass. I have no chance of passing. There's nothing that I can do under my current structure without actually learning this stuff, which I've never tried to do and pass. And so, you know, I had, was at that weird crossroads of figuring out whether I want to take this seriously, plus all this stuff going on. And so I ended up taking time off. During that time off, I hit my 21st birthday, won a seat like a couple days after my birthday on Poker Stars to the main event and decided, you know, I was going to go out to play to play poker. And so, yeah, that was and, just kind of circumstantial. And uh, that first year uh, that you were eligible to play poker, how, how did that WSOP go? So, uh, of course, now, you know, uh, what, 17 years later, I've told this story a lot of times now, but one more time for, for fun is that I went out with um, a couple friends. I all shared a hotel room at the Rio. I went to the World Series with $5,000 at the beginning. And so I, I didn't really know that this was not, you know, enough money to do anything, but whatever. And I had my main event seat, of course, which was like a month afterwards. And I played the first event. The first event was so awkward because I realized I'd never actually played live poker before. I never <laughs> really used chips. I never didn't really even know how to protect my hand or anything. This wasn't really a thing. And so, you know, I ended up going pretty deep into day one and, and losing and uh, played the next day. I think it's no limit 1500, then pot limit 1500. And that didn't go well and lost. So now I've got 2K left and there for another month. You know, there's only. If you want to, there weren't a bunch of $500 Colossus turns or anything. So basically I've got one more tournament I can play and maybe afford to eat for a while or something along those lines or figure something else out. And so both my friends end up going down on day three for the, the 1500 limit. And I decide I'm going to skip this one. And I'm sitting in my hotel room and I'm just like, man, this stinks. Like, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, well, if I go down and register this tournament, but basically in my case 1500 there's about a 99 percent chance i regret that <laughs> if, I, if i sit in this hotel room and never play it there's a hundred percent chance i'm going to regret that and so you know i went down played it ended up winning and so uh yeah that worked out i guess by god man did nobody tell you about cash games or satellites i don't know how much like i'm sure it had to have existed at the time there but i don't know how much of it it there was in 2005 like this was the first year of the rio i mean there must have been stuff but yeah i, I don't know that i know it had necessarily done well like i wasn't stuff to say I, I don't really remember all that much about how good i was or i guess i was probably still playing online and i could have been playing online in the room or something like that i don't really know yeah it's funny um so yeah you bought into the 1500 with your friends and you know you had a month to go but whatever we'll, we'll figure it out what happened? It went pretty well. 
know, sometimes things work out. I don't know. It's hard to say how, how stuff like that happens, but, uh, yeah, lucky. Yeah. Um, would you win from that tournament? Um, I think first place in that was 360. And we did like some sort of split heads up. I think that I ended up with like 300 and then I had um, splits with my with the two friends who I was staying with. So I think I probably ended up before taxes and stuff having mm-hmm. a little over two. 220 yeah. maybe and then nothing Not left a- after taxes but still good yeah yeah um you can now make it the rest of the month to the main event uh <laughs> oh and i did and i did not come close to cashing another event the rest of the summer <laughs> you were the youngest player to win a bracelet that year right in 2005 sure, yes yeah was that even like do you remember when they told you that? Did you even know that that was like on the table until you had won the bracelet? So, funny enough, um, 2005 was just obviously a bit of a boom. Like the fact that if you look today, or not even today, because obviously there's a pandemic, but anytime in the past, however many years, at a 1500 limit tournament, you know, the fact that there was over 1100 entries and first place was $360,000, like that's not a thing. And, um, yeah, it was just crazy. And so the numbers they were getting were just massive. And so it ended up happening. My tournament was not supposed to be covered. Not surprisingly, because why would they put a 1500 limit on ESPN? Mm-hmm. But because there were so many people and it went so long in one of the earlier events, I think the first event, maybe Scott Fisher won or Scott Fishman won or um, something like that. They were supposed to, I think, record the second event. And the first one went so long that they couldn't. And so they ended up pushing mine in its place. And so, of course, then there was a bunch of interviews with, you know, before we played the final table, there's all the ESPN stuff and all those side interviews and the various stuff with that. So, I mean, I certainly knew. I also think a lot of those records are kind of silly in a lot of ways. Like, I think that being really young and doing well is cool. But also, like, like if I win the event, if my birthday happens to be June 1st and the event is June 3rd, but I've already got to play several events while someone else does it in their first event, but their birthday was two days earlier. They're not real like that. That makes no sense to me. Like, yeah, it's it's pretty arbitrary. Like, it's just kind of random. If me and you are born one week apart, but I'm one week younger, but I played five events before you got to play your first, or am I really doing something that's more impressive than what you're doing? No, but so a lot of that, those records are kind of weird to me. But at the same time, like, yeah, it was cool, and it was definitely something I cared about because, um, you'll take any record you can get. Like, that's just a valuable thing. If people even if it's not something that would necessarily matter to me intrinsically, the fact that other people say it matters means it matters because it just was a thing. And so, um, you know, then full tilt is reaching out to me and I get sponsorships and things like that. And it's on TV, like it's just worth monetary amounts. And so even if it's not really that special of a thing in reality, the fact that, you know, enough people in the world care about it makes it a thing. Yeah. Which is kind of true of like most everything. Yeah, um, pretty much and, everything in the world is that yeah. way. But yeah. <laughs> um, a friend of mine, speaking of limit tournaments, uh, I remember it was probably 2004, 2005. He, he won a bracelet in Tunica and it was like 70K for like a 1K limit hold'em event. And like there was like a fair amount of people that played in these like 1K limit hold'em events. Like they were, I think that was like, that was like a staple of the tour around the country. They would have the, those limit hold'em events. 
Um, I don't know of many limit hold'em events that are getting getting ran these days. Yeah, I feel like people really cared about limit hold'em um, when I was coming up. It was the main game I played. It was the main game all my friends played. No limit was kind of an afterthought, and then limit kind of became more and more solved, and that just makes it less fun for a lot of people, especially those who don't necessarily want to spend time solving it and just kind of enjoy playing their game. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely, I think, what people kind of considered to be a, you know, a really big thing. Yeah, I, I, now that I think about it, the it was like the Party Poker Million Cruise was a limit hold'em event. Michael Grotz won it uh, one year. And and it was like a multiple year thing. Like Kathy Liebert won it. I can't remember if it was Limit Hold'em then, but I know the year that Michael Gross won it. It was a WPT event, and it was Limit Hold'em. Uh, which, yeah, I think looking back on it, it's like wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean Limit. Yeah, Limit was just big. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And now today, it's not really something that more than a, a handful of people really care about on the tournament scene. At least, of course, it's still going to be spread in all the casinos because there's enough regulars who have been doing this for decades now uh, yeah. yeah it's just not it's not really where the glory is and so it's not really where as much money is going to be and so that kind of became the thing is just where is there going to be outside money i guess and so where you can get sponsorships and television money and and really just uh you know that that's the best way to be profitable in anything um is to be able to get money from outside the prize pool where you're already putting up your own buy-in yeah you're leveraging um, leveraging your success into other avenues, uh, other opportunities. I, it's funny, just had Terrence Chan on the podcast and he was like the, one of the Limit Hold'em in bosses. And he was just talking about how he played heads up Limit Hold'em. And like, at, 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 there was a point where you just don't get action. You just like sit by yourself in the lobby and you don't ever play against anyone. Um, so yeah, that was, I remember uh, like Matt Harlinko. Uh, playing on full tilt and just like sitting by himself at like whatever the ungodly limit hold'em biggest stake was at the time, 4K, 8K or whatever table they had. Yeah, I've never, never considered playing anything like that. But. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight and they know what you have. Too loose and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And preflop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes 
prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. After that WSOP, you know, your poker career kind of just shot off. You know, what was what was next after that WSOP? Uh, you mentioned you signed on with Full Tilt, so... I assume you you know you got sponsored and just traveling playing cards. Yes and no. Um, you know, after that first year and that you know that summer playing the World Series, I kind of did not want to be a professional poker player. I didn't really think it was necessarily for me. There's a lot of things about the entire lifestyle, I guess, in a lot of ways that didn't necessarily feel like it meshed with me super well. Like what? Um. I don't know how, at that time, especially when I was 21, I don't know how well I could be around just like alcohol all the time, gambling all the time. Like I have a very addictive personality and it felt like it was going to be very easy to fall into a lot of traps. And so being able to just, you know, I, I've been lucky that I haven't fallen into a lot of the pitfalls that a lot of other poker players have fallen into with things like the pit and other things like that. Um, too much, but it's definitely happened in my life to on smaller scales where I could see it was going to get worse. And so I just, I, I've been lucky that I've been able to catch myself before I've, you know, done anything that would have severely negatively impacted my life, but it felt like a thing that could definitely happen. What, what was because, something that was like kind of a close call? I mean, I, I've lost reasonable amounts of money in, in all of those type of situations, but I've never you know, kind of unloaded the clip or, or really gone off the handle or, you know, I've had too much to drink, but never to the point of not having any memories and kind of losing a large chunk of money or making some huge mistake that I, I think that would be pretty common for a lot of people, especially in their early twenties to kind of run into. Yeah. And so I'm also someone who's never 
actually done any drugs, but you know, it's one of those things that each thing is kind of a stepping stone to, to other things. And so I have no idea what path I could go down, but it's worrisome enough that I don't never wanted to kind of find out. Yeah. And I mean, that's a very rational approach. You know, I think uh, one of my, one of my best friends is the smartest human I've ever met. And he's, he's very similar in that regard of like, no, I am not going to drink. My dad was an alcoholic and like, I'm just never going to take any sort of, uh, chance like that. And to his credit never has, um, ironically ended up being like a high stakes sports better, but I guess that's a different story for a different day. <laughs> he he could, that anything he could being, find an edge in, he's willing to throw down. So once I, you know, kind of took the path of becoming a professional poker player, which was mostly because I got offers I couldn't refuse. Like it felt like it was too greedy is not the right word. Selfish isn't right, the right word, but it's down that path of just like, I can't turn down the opportunity I'm getting from having success at 21 now that I'm 22 to, to not take this like full tilt deal to not go play more of these events, especially when I do enjoy poker. And so I ended up imposing a self ban on alcohol whenever I was in Vegas. So when I, if I'm in Vegas, I'm not drinking was a rule I basically set for myself. And so, um, yeah, just trying to find ways to, to make sure that, you know, you don't, find yourself in a spiral because it's just easy. And there are so many things in life that I feel like are very depressing. And um, one of my big things, I think probably what a lot of people probably know me for in a lot of ways, like social media related, once that became a thing, is that I was very negative on all these things. I would complain about bad beats. And um, that was a very mental thing. And basically growing up, I never went to social media forums like two plus two because I had friends who would link me to things of just people bashing me and insulting me. And because I was overweight and I didn't deserve what I had, the attacks on me were relentless. And so I, I don't want to read this stuff. These people have never met me and they're saying all these terrible things about me and how I, you know, and not about anything that is relevant. Just, it was basically all associated to looks more than anything else. But that was kind of the spiel is that this is what they're talking about. This is what they're attacking me. And they want to find things to attack me for. And so then social media, as it became bigger, I basically set up a wall, like a, a bubble where I didn't want anyone to be able to get close. And also, I think I was kind of defensive of just like, I need to explain why I'm out of this tournament that I took this terrible beat and people aren't going to understand otherwise, like, unless I go like this, this terrible beat happened to me, but also I don't want them to get close. So this also pushes them away. It's accomplishing both of my, which end up being stupid goals, but that was kind of my, not that I was thinking about that, you know, consciously, but when I went back and thought about, because it's so different than my actual personality of what I must've been, you know, kind of going through at the time. It was very clear to me once I actually decided to break it down and, you know, found things like therapy and wanted to figure out why, you know, these things just kind of kept me down. And so uh, I think that was just kind of a big part of it. Yeah, I'm, man, I, I, I'm sorry you went through that. You know, that's just terrible. I think it's just, I don't you know. know. A, lot of it's, a lot of it is self-imposed though. Like it's hard because yes, there was a lot of shitty things said to me about me, et cetera many, many years ago, but then by the approach that I took and by putting my kind of public persona 
in that light for a period of time by choice, it kind of allowed people to think that I am this, you know, different person and not necessarily a good person or positive person, just kind of a, a negative person, a complainer, a, you know, all these things are just like not really someone you'd necessarily want to hang out with or anything positive. And so it just, but I a self-defense kind of mechanism, for, you know, right. But I, it also set me up for failure pretty hard and also set me up for failure. And just like, if I wanted to continue in that world or if I wanted to be more public or do anything that involved shows or sponsorships or things like that, I'm not really making myself marketable at all. And so I, I wasn't marketable to a company. I wasn't marketable to people as, you know, someone you'd want to hang out with. As I just really, I, I made things harder for myself. And I know, I now understand why I did it. And I feel like why I did it and at least made sense for what I was dealing with at the time, but I didn't do myself any favors. And if there's somebody in the CPG audience that is going through what you went through in current day, you know, what would be your wisdom? What, what advice would you give them and how to handle it? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the best things I did was just going to therapy and admitting that, you know, life is hard. Life is really hard. And to say that as someone, and I, I want to be very clear about this. My life is very privileged. Like I grew up white in America, the, you know, middle class kind of had everything given to me. I think I was born with a lot of gifts that I think people would, you know, that not everyone has while also not dealing with a lot of the struggles. And so, and I, a good family, like I, I know how many people really struggle with things that are so far out of their control where they just don't have a good support system, don't have positive influences. And I had all of that. And still my life was really, really hard. And so, it, you know, that kind of goes to show it's going to be hard for just about everyone. And so, and that's okay. That's okay. Like, um, I understand the need, you know, to, to like qualify the suffering that you felt. And it's just, yeah, it's, life is a struggle um and especially various parts of our lives and you know when people especially because i'm I'm assuming that like you got a lot of blowback from the magic crowd or was it the poker crowd or both of them for a lot of this i I wasn't really in the magic world i kind of moved out of like once i went to college i kind of focused a little bit more on poker and by the time i was 21 i you know, still paid a little bit of attention to magic, but I hadn't been playing it. And I really didn't for a while until 2010. They ended up giving me an invite to one of the professional tournaments that, you know, I didn't, you normally have to go play a qualifier and win that, that has a couple hundred people where only first place or so qualifies, something like that along those lines. And I hadn't gone and done that. They just gave me a, a special invite as they also did for David Williams. And so, um, yeah, it, that got me back into magic and I never left from there for, you know, more than 10 years. And so, um, yeah, I definitely received some of that from the magic side too, because I kept some of that personality of the, you know, defending losses as, you know, kind of bad beat complaining and using that kind of social media and again, pushing people away. But I also had a lot of people in magic who I was friends with, who were very popular in the community. And, because my persona, I think, was so different in person versus online, and the fact that there was so much more in person, so people got to experience that more. And then because I was so successful and so, you know, talented, I guess, at magic, 
I was useful to a lot of people in a lot of, in a very different way than poker. Whereas poker, you know, being able to bounce ideas off someone is valuable. And magic, you're literally going to show up at the next tournament with a different deck where you just decided spades are better than hearts are better than diamonds, which is not a thing in poker where it just doesn't exist. And so the edge you get from having talented people around you is exponentially more than what you could ever get from poker. Because if you show up to the next event with the best deck, the, the odds of you doing well are extremely good. Yeah. And so um, it's just a, a very valuable asset. Yeah. Um, so you got back into magic in 2010. What was the years, you know, 2006 through 2010, you know, what did that look like as it relates to your poker career? I mean, I ended up, I, I was living in LA. I moved in with a bunch of friends. They kind of very quickly decided to move back to the other side of the country, which I had just come from. <laughs> How did that happen? Let's get him out here. And once he gets here, we're going to all move away from it. Yeah. I mean, I, I got convinced that I needed to move out there and that, um, you know, very, it's not like they'd been out there for years and just decided, but it, it had been kind of a short period of time and it was a pretty quick turnaround. And so I ended up moving back in with my parents. I ended up moving back in with my parents in Northern Virginia for a little while before moving to Michigan to move in with a friend there. And um, yeah, I I would definitely travel to a handful of events. I would still go to the World Series during the summers. I went to a handful of WPTs and really struggled because I did not understand deep stack play. Like everything I did in tournaments was very much... um, translated over from cash games in a lot of ways, which I think worked very well back then because there wasn't necessarily great tournament strategy, um, especially for the shorter stacks. It kind of played enough similarly that I was able to have at least a, a decent amount of success, not that I was incredibly successful or anything, but uh, WPTs and deep stack, man, I struggled with. I, I finally final tabled one in Foxwoods. And I think they said it was like my 20th appearance in my first cash. And so, you know, really just... <laughs> not 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 the most successful there but i guess you know i ended up getting fourth or so and uh i think that made me more money than the previous 20 buy-in so i guess it was still fine in the end but um yeah i was just figuring a lot of stuff out and i had my full tilt deal man for, so for a period of time full tilt was giving me break back and also paying me an hourly whenever i was at the table and at one point in time, they were paying me such a high hourly for being at the tables that like it consumed my life for such a long period of time where I felt like I couldn't do anything else. Like, I think, I don't remember how much I was getting paid. It was less than a hundred dollars an hour, but it was close enough to that, that it was just like, I can't, why I can't afford to go to the movies. Like I can't take two hours off. Like I'm not going to go spend $200 to go see this movie. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it was for small stakes too. Like, it's not like I had to be playing 2040. I can be playing penny stakes. And this was what I was getting paid. And it's just like, and I would interact with the chat. It's not like I was not doing my job. And they had a table like named after me. It was like table Eric Froelich. And I would sit there and I would chat with the people, but it also just felt like I can't afford, like the amount of money I can bring in <laughs> from just doing this will pay for all my world series buy-ins this year. If I can do this for enough time, like it's just so much money. And so that I just, again, I became obsessive and that was just kind of my thing. And that that was kind of in 2008, 2009, I think was when I first figured out that I should probably go 
and and look into therapy and figure out you know some of the issues that I'm dealing with both with like the world with friendships with you know obsessing and then again with food and weight and various other things with that that I've always struggled with and as you um started going to therapy and doing some work like what were some of the gains that you made I mean countless to the point that when you ask me questions about a lot of this stuff beforehand it's hard for me to remember specifics and very hard to remember mindsets because it's just kind of an idea versus a real focus because it's it feels almost out of body in a lot of ways very hard to kind of pinpoint you know exactly what was going on because it just felt like there were so many constant struggles between you know being lonely and not being you know never really being able to find a relationship um struggles with a lot of different friendships my family was great but of course there's plenty of issues there too and a lot of i think my dad struggles with everything i struggle with to a greater extreme than i struggle with it but i'm much more willing to try to figure out the answers and you know being older makes it makes i think any person less willing to put in that time because it's already you know so many years by um and as a result of that, and by the way, like, I think it, yeah, like, it's another part of getting older in age. You, if, like, I look back at my 20 year old self and I don't really recognize them. You, like, you can't, it's hard for me to even imagine what that human being was thinking at certain points because I just feel like, like a totally different human uh, these days, 20, almost 20 years later. Dear God. Um, now, the upgraded version of yourself after you know you started working on yourself and building relationships and able to you know have more friendships and you know meet a partner like i guess what was what's the most major upgrade like if you could pin it on like one thing that that you upgraded what what was the one thing that kind of upgraded all the other systems I don't think that's a thing. Like, I, I don't think it's ever a one thing. I think that, like, I think that's what makes so many of these things so hard is that they're all connected. And so, you know, when you, the whole saying of you can't love someone else until you love yourself, like all of these things that are kind of, there's a lot of various sayings that I think are similar to that in nature that are just true, not that they have to be specifically true about that one thing, but that, you know, everything has a lot of connectivity. And so when you're struggling so much with one facet, it really makes each one, uh, each other facet, you know, the same way as our body is once you have back pain, the fact that it causes issues with your legs and your neck and, and various other things, it's just, it, it all kind of spirals. And so that's why it's very easy for to spiral into a low. And once you're you know, figuring a lot of that stuff out and finding more ways to be content and finding, you know, positive outlets and just not feeling the weight of the world all the time. It definitely really just does make everything else a little bit easier. And as each other thing gets a little bit easier, it makes the next thing a little bit easier. And it's never actually going to get to the point where it's easy. I don't think that anyone really has it easy. It's always going to put in work. But once it feels tolerable, manageable, that it's something you can do, it's just a it's just a different world and so it's, it's just night and day and so again i don't think that there's just one thing that's going to then shift that it, it's just an entire mindset of 
and, and it's really not just like an optimistic, pessimistic view of like, oh, this glass is half full versus half empty. But in a lot of ways, it kind of relates back to that of like, once you see that half full glass, like, and you can figure out all the ways that, you know, that this is, this can work out just fine. It, it's going to be a lot easy, a lot easier to then cope with all the negatives as opposed to very easy to spiral down once you start the other way. And what did life look like? from you know the before and then you know these past 10 years um i think that a lot of my issues were kind of anger related i think that i was very angry at a lot of different things for a long time and most of that was very internalized which would kind of then come out more with the social media type stuff and that when i'm pushing people away or i'm angry at the world um for handing me a bad beat whatever it might be that was kind of my outlet in a lot of ways because I'm not the type of person who's going to get physical. I'm not going to, you know, put a hole in the wall or hurt anyone or anything. Like that's just not something that I think is at all okay. And so that was kind of my line, but getting really fumed up or slamming a door or, you know, viewing off nonsense on social media was definitely something I could see myself doing. And, you know, being able to get past a lot of that stuff and being at the point where, you know, that doesn't feel like a thing that I need to be doing. Um, you know, because what ended up happening and a lot of the reasons why that would spiral, like when life is so hard, when real life just feels like there's problem after problem and there's so much to deal with, what I ended up doing was using these poker tournaments and magic tournaments. They felt like an escape. Like when I'm playing this tournament, first off, I can win. That uh, you always have that dream, like that is a totally possible scenario that you're going to have this great result, but also my focus is on this thing. And so I can now escape from my real world problems and everything negative kind of going on and focus on the task at hand. And I was very good at that. Then you bust and you it's usually you bust on, you know, some kind of bad beat pretty commonly, especially if, you know, the, the better you play, the more often you're going to lose on something that is unfortunate in a lot of ways. And also because there's so many different ways to take a bad beat, like whether you got all in pre and, and take that bad beat or, you know, someone just happens to flop a hand and you get cooler in that way. Like all of these things are different forms of bad beat. So it's very easily, very easy to internalize everything as being unlucky for you when you're in that mindset. And so I would get to the point where not only have I now taken this bad beat, where I'm not thinking about all the stuff I've lost out on, but now I'm forced to go back into whatever negative reality I might be dealing with and all of the problems of real life. And my bubbles just burst. And so it's just this, this big thing of, it just is a crash down of just like lots of negative things at once. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that was a pretty common thing where, you know, I needed that. I felt like I needed that release of like, Oh my God, I have to go back and, and deal with all of this crap. I just took this bad beat, let everyone know how unlucky I am and get out this anger on social media or, or whatever. And that was part of my way of processing it, which is not good. Yeah, it sounds like poker was kind of like your drug. Like it, it was yes. your your escape. Oh, yeah. Um, tell me about meeting your wife. Uh, because as I mentioned in the, the pre-call, I, I had this whole thing in my head because I was like, I was doing my research and saw your wife on Twitter and her username is Elantris, which is like one of my favorite books, like Brandon Sanderson's probably my favorite author. And I was like, ah, cool. Like we have this common interest. We'll be able to talk about that. 
and <laughs> mention it first thing and you're like, yeah, I, I've never read that book. I, I've only read three books ever. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> never mind. Well, we, we have my wife on the podcast. She'll tell you all about yeah, it. There, there yeah, there you go. No, I mean, I, I've never, she's a big reader. I'm not, but um, yeah, I, I actually met her on Twitch. She streamed magic. She was one of the first female streamers. Um, which partially was because she didn't see other female streamers and thought that would be a cool thing to kind of do. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I saw her on there. I probably clicked on it for the first time because I saw a really attractive woman streaming magic, which no. is a pretty rare thing. But um, <laughs> not, not that. Yeah. But yeah, then, you know, we ended up getting to talking and, she had no idea who I was and I was pretty famous in the magic world, but you have to follow the professional scene in some way, which was kind of nice in a lot of ways too. But, you know, then we, we started talking and hit it off pretty well, I guess. And she told people at her local game store and they're like, wait, you know, you know, you know, Efro, like that's a big deal, which probably was bonus points, but didn't hurt anything. Yeah, not, not, but again, she didn't care about anyone doing well at magic or anything. And I wasn't even really playing poker at all at the time either. So, um, yeah, she ended up taking I think the train down. Like I, she was living in Philly. I was in Vegas and there was a big magic tournament in DC and she took the train down for our first date. I ended up making top eight of that tournament, which was the tournament that ended up basically clinching the fact that I was for sure going to get voted into the hall of fame that year from having another top eight or final table or, you know, for people who don't follow those type of games. And uh, yeah, it was kind of moved pretty fast. She ended up moving to Vegas within a few months and we got engaged at my hall of fame ceremony at the end of that year and got married about two years after we had our first date and married for a little over five years now. Congratulations, man. The, you know, there's always some level of attract attractiveness when somebody is great at something, right? Like when they have achieved some level of success at some endeavor, it's uh, yeah, it says a lot about a human being, just about their drive, about who they are. And I think, yeah, that certainly helped. And it's great that, you know, you guys took the, after sliding into her Twitch private messages, you know, that everything worked out in the real world too. That's a good story, man. Yeah, no, she's very into passion and being passionate about things. And of course, what you just said ties in very well with that. You're not going to be great at something without being passionate about it and putting in that time and effort first. And so I think that combination was uh, was definitely something that was, you know, of interest. And, you know, these days, what does your, your life look like? Like, what are, you, what are we spending our time doing? I mean, I've been working with like a sports betting conglomerate for a period of time now, and it's definitely a job that I'm very suited for and that it's all analytics and data and spreadsheets and stuff like that, while also combining it with sports, of which I am obsessed. I watch all the games all the time. She actually set up my office type, you know, uh, loft area with just rows of, of televisions. Um, you know, when we were in Vegas, so it was kind of like a sports book. We haven't got, we just got a huge television for our house here now that we're out in the Seattle area. We haven't done the full sports book thing yet, but uh, yeah, it's just great to, you know, kind of combine all the things that I, I really love in all those spaces together to you know, make a living, I guess. Yeah, that's sick, man. Um, 
So I have a lightning round here. So some questions um, to close down the show. But uh, what's the most unexpected thing that, that came through from your journey through the world of poker? Oh, man, I don't know that much was unexpected. I'm very much a planner to, you know, make sure I'm getting into things that I, I know. Well, being in that being in that 1500 tournament, that that's well, pretty unexpected. <laughs> or maybe it wasn't unexpected back then. Yeah, I guess the fact that I've ever like had the level of success that I've had. And when, you, but the thing is, at the time, I was so confident, like, looking back on it, and seeing, you know, the type of ways I played and the mistakes I was making and how different they are from you know, like right now, people ask me about poker, and the truth is that I know I'm not even like in the conversation of being close to anywhere near the best. Like, there's so many levels below where I am now, where I think, but I still think I'm a very solid winning player in World Series events. Like, I think that my ROI across the World Series is high, and I think that you know, year after year, I go and I, I'm successful almost every time, and I think that's the type of thing that will continue because. I, and I'm nowhere near the top. Again, like I can't play the high rollers. I can't compete with the people studying all the solvers and stuff. But I do know a lot about tournament poker. I do know a lot about how people who are below me tend to, you know, the mistakes they make that I'm good at taking advantage of. And I think I'm good at putting myself in, in, a, in a nice position. Like the last five main events, I've lasted 20 days or something between the five of them. And it's like I can go deep in this tournament and set myself up for where if I catch a break or two, I, I'm going to, you know, put on a real run. And, you know, I gotten a little unlucky in some of these day three or day four spots. And, you know, that's just something that happens because it's a grind. But at the end of the day, like, I think that, um, yeah, I think that I, I'm very, very lucky that I got lucky at a young age because that could have easily not happened where everyone was kind of at a very similar skill level to me, even if I was maybe a little bit better than the field in a lot of ways, you know, actually winning the tournaments is worth so much more than finishing fourth. And that could just easily, you know, flip around and then your life's totally different. I'm never sponsored. I probably, honestly, if I don't snap off that one tournament, you know, I probably don't even finish out the rest of the series. I'm definitely not sponsored. I, the odds of me playing poker today are very low. Although maybe I then study more and yeah, because um, like I grew up in the same area as, me and Justin Bonneville played the same magic card store, you know, two miles away from home, grew up in the exact same area. Like maybe I end up going down that path and, you know, Justin did not have as much success in magic. He had a little bit and then kind of moved on to poker. And even in poker for a while, I was more successful in a lot of ways, but he really studied hard, became, you know, maybe the best player in the world at a time where it was the most valuable to be the best player in the world. And, you know, now he's, in contention for the, you know, the number one all-time money list. And like, is that something I could have potentially gotten myself into? Totally possible. Like, I think that I have very similar mindset and skills in, in a lot of ways, but he had the dedication drive, found the right people, you know, did, did the right things and put himself in position to do that. Is there a chance that I would have done that if things have been different? I mean, there's some, like, I don't know. Yeah. So it's very hard to say. Yeah. It's, impossible these different uh decision paths if things don't go a very specific way what what else might have happened even if you know things going a different way is not exactly a, a positive thing right um, like i kind of felt forced like i said earlier a little bit to be a professional poker player at a time mm -hmm. where i didn't necessarily want to and there's some chance i would have just fell more in love with poker and then really became a study or grinder if that had not happened 
I, I mean, I have no idea if that's likely or extremely unlikely. Like it could be anything. It's just so hard because again, it's a lifetime ago. Like this is talking about stuff almost twenty years ago at this point. Yeah, and it's probably not something that like makes you makes you love a thing when you feel obligated to play twenty four hours a day because you're getting mm-hmm. like full rake back and close to a hundred dollars an hour um, on full tilt. It, it's very easy for that to become an obligation and not be a passion. Yeah, it's definitely a job and a grind in a different way. Yeah. Um, if you could erect a billboard that every poker player has got to drive past on their way to the casino, what's your billboard say? More rake is better. Clearly, more rake is better. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I really enjoyed all that stuff. I think I, I really like Doug and Daniel. I consider them both to be... Uh, you know, not friends, but friendly. And I, my wife was actually editing Daniel's vlogs for a period of time. And um, yeah, I think they're both great guys. I thought, thought all that stuff was pretty funny though. Nothing like a rivalry to get people interested in, oh, I in, loved in a it. thing. That, that whole, I was watching them play heads up, even though I don't care about heads up and there's no whole cards and just like, man, got sucked into it all. I, I've been a part of this world for so long. Like I did commentary on Solve for Why for the software wise live stream on that heads up event. And like, I don't mm-hmm. even play heads up and <laughs> I, I can promise you that like, if I'm going to be doing something with my time, I do not want to be watching two people play poker against each other. <laughs> that is not a thing <laughs> I want to spend my free time doing. And yet there I was watching oh, this I, thing. I am addicted to the Hellmuth matches Those with the, with the commentary done by Ali and you know, whether it's Nick or, or Phil or whoever, like, I, I got so excited to watch him play against Tom again. And yeah, like I'm like, that is must see TV for me, even though again, like the game itself, I don't know how much I care about, but like, Oh, I love it. So some of these like events just kind of get it going. Like I remember the, the very first one drop, um, at commerce casino, everybody's playing cards and like just glued to the TV. Nobody's paying attention to their games. Cause we're watching this like million dollar buy-in event. It was, yeah, something that's pretty rare um, in, in poker. Yeah. Um, what's a project that you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? I mean, my current obsession is NDA Top Shot, and I don't really care about NFTs. I don't have NFTs. I don't know even if I like the fact that NFTs exist in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but man, again, it goes back to what I was talking about right at the beginning when I got into magic, the whole collecting aspect and loving the NBA and the fact that I can now have these moments and that there's kind of a market where I can, you know, use my knowledge of the NBA to kind of have a better understanding of what's going to go up and down and have new things to collect and challenges and ways to be competitive. There's so many things about Top Shot that feed into my obsessive personality and the exact things that I love that it's just become, you know, something that I that I'm on every single day at this point and just, uh, yeah, I'm kind of all about it. How's your wife feel about Top Shot? She likes it. She's got a Top Shot account. We kind of joined together. Um, it, there's been a lot of weird ups and downs. Like it's weird cause too, with her job and the number, like she does a lot of stuff on social media. So she can't really talk about it because there's so many people who are so anti NFT and for mostly good reasons. Some of them I don't really agree with, but a lot of them I do agree with. And so we're not vocal about this kind of stuff on social media because there's a lot of backlash and a lot of negativity. And we're not even 100% sure how we feel about that either. 
and still figuring a lot of that stuff out. But um, yeah, I think in a lot of ways it's brought us closer. Like she uses the platform. She's watched more NBA and has favorite players that she had never, like she didn't watch the NBA beforehand. And so, you know, we've been to a handful of games before the pandemic where, you know, she had some idea of, they're mostly Trailblazers games. So she got, she became a Trailblazers fan and was into Damian Lillard, which hasn't worked out so well this season. But um, we've watched a few more games. She's got a few more favorite players, a few favorite plays. You know, she looks up some stuff, makes some showcases. And so, yeah, it's been really cool. I actually think it's been really good for our relationship. And anytime I want to make a big purchase or do anything like that, I always talk it through with her, which also feels good that you know, we can kind of do that together. Yeah, just bonding experience and mm-hmm. having the the shared passion for a thing. That's awesome. Awesome to hear. Yeah, I don't think she's got the passion for it, but I think <laughs> the fact that she is still well, you're you're and, sharing your passion exactly. with her. Well, that's the thing is that she's so willing to indulge my passion, which just makes me feel better as a person that the person I care the most about cares enough about me to then make this a thing and and has basically chosen to care about something that she would otherwise not have cared about. Yeah, that's the dream, man. That's the yeah. dream. Um, and, and with that said, uh, just one final question. Uh, if the CPG audience wants to learn more about you, where do they go? Twitter generally is the best space. It's at Efro Poker. And yeah, that's, that's basically the only place I really am for the most part. Cool, man. I don't it's really been... use, like I used to use a lot of Facebook, but not anymore. I'm not really an Instagram person. Don't use really any of the other stuff, but Twitter, Twitter still is a good one. I have all of them because I have to. I do too, but I can't tell you the last time I checked one. So I have an assistant now. Place. Yeah, I have an assistant now, and most of my tweets are just like they're Gwen. <laughs> they're not me logging on lo- logging <laughs> on Twitter um, and Facebook. Yeah, I I can't remember the last time I actually just logged on Facebook to see what was going on. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's been great having you, man. H- have a great rest of your day, Thanks and you. yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.